nonfiction that reads like a novel and a novel steeped in modern California history are where we go today. I am Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. Longtime internet blogger and teacher of reflective writing has written a memoir that is heart-wrenching and ultimately triumphant on the period of her life when her ex-husband kidnapped their two kids with whom they shared custody. That book is You'll Never Find Us, and we'll hear from Jeannie Baker Guy, its author, later in the show. Right now, we'll visit with Joanna Fitzpatrick, whose novel is The Artist Colony, a murder mystery set in a woman's art colony in the dynamic environment of 1924 Carmel-by-the-Sea. So stay with us. It's a novel idea. Joanna Fitzpatrick grew up in Hollywood, her dad produced films there, where she got involved with the music business, eventually landed in New York, but found her way back to California, and she currently makes her home in the Carmel area, where her latest novel, The Artist Colony, is set. Though a work of fiction, it vividly paints the weather and landscape of the area that has so inspired many artists. And it's set in the early 20th century when women who just got the vote were struggling to be taken seriously as artists. Fitzpatrick enjoys riffing on the people and places that interest her, and her previous novels are Catherine Mansfield, a novel, and The Drummer's Widow, set in the music world. Let's listen to our conversation. Joanna Fitzpatrick, uh, welcome remotely to Northern California to talk about your book, The Artist's Colony. Uh, set in, in Carmel, this novel was spun up from your own curiosity and a painting you inherited, painted by the landscape artist Ada Bell Champlin, who had a home in Carmel, and was your aunt. So tell us a little bit about the inspiration for the book and what got you going. I'm a New Yorker who moved uh, to Carmel nine nine years ago. But I've had this painting in all of my homes on the East Coast, and especially during frigid weather, there's nothing better than looking up at Carmel countryside. It looks so warm and gorgeous. So we finally came here and we hung her painting on the wall in our home and we made new friends and everyone would say, oh, I know where that is. And I realized that I was living near this painting that had been in, in all my homes on the East Coast. So I decided to start finding out about Ada Bell Champlin. Um, she was my great aunt. She came from Chicago, went to the Art Institute. She has two, three, four other sisters two of them artists, one Ada Bell and the other one Holly was an artist. So I, there's this painting and I started looking around. I started going to the historical library. I started going to the planning board. And in time, I found the Sketchbox, which is the art studio. That was the name that she'd given the art studio. And I met an artist who was living there now. There have been only three artists in this home 
And the first one was my great aunt in 1926. She built this home. So from there, things just kept growing and growing. And yeah, now we have a novel. Yes. (laughs) And you've written a couple of other novels that were also kind of uh, maybe steeped in reality. I mean, your previous book was on Catherine Mansfield, but it was a novel. And this, too, has got a lot of factual basis, but it is a a, a murder mystery. And it seems like uh, every time a character is introduced, they become a suspect, at least in the yes. reader's mind. And, and clues are even in the paintings mm-hmm. themselves. So, so tell us a little bit about how you decided to make this story into a whodunit. Well, it, it started as you're right, my other books were both different. I've always gone from one genre to another. But when I was getting my master's degree in creative writing, I was told, you know, write what you know, write what you love to read. And I read mysteries. I'm a huge fan of Agatha Christie. And when I was thinking about my third novel, I thought, well, it's time to write a mystery. So it started as a mystery. Um, and then my Ada Bell Champlin's life merged into it. And they, you know, connected. And then I love research. And I spent um, a couple of years researching Ada Bell and the artist colony, the artists that lived there, the locations. And from that, it kept developing. But my first, you know, which I call just putting down words, my first draft starting on the blank page oh, was, was a mystery. It was uh, a whodunit. It was just having fun. Um, and then everything else got thrown into it and made it into a historical mystery. Yeah. yeah. And your, your descriptions of the ocean and, and the Carmel area, mm. um, despite the fact that some pretty nasty things are going on in the book, mm. but they're so evocative, not, not only of place, but of, of that different time, the stories set in 1924. And your description of some of the paintings and painting style mm. are, are rather detailed, almost mm. like a critic might be. <laughs> so, so talk a little bit about the setting and the art and how you tackled that as a writer. Well, I've always loved art, and I've gone to many museums in my life and read those descriptions on the side, which are very helpful when you're trying to describe paintings in a novel. So that was a, a big help. I also really connect with paintings like stories, that when you're writing a story, you are creating a painting with its colors and whatever you're doing. It's it's a describe it becomes an image, right? It's an image in a book and it's an image in a painting. So that was part of just the way I write. Then the locations of Car have you been to Carmel? Yes. And and I have to tell you that I can't wait to come back. (laughs) Because it is uh, extraordinary. And in fact, I I was just doing some tapings. I'm I'm doing this video of of actual tour locations. And we went back to several of the Lone Cypress, Point Lobos, places like that to do these kind of a travelogue of me speaking and looking out at the view. And and I just revisited what I hadn't been to for several months. And it's just the most gorgeous destination. I mean, it's not, it's no question why people come there. And yesterday was beautiful. So, so the locations, that's what happened next. Because remember, I'm coming from New York. 
and I didn't know Carmel at all. So in the research, uh, I'm always being a location scouter. I really think cinema, cinematographically when I write. So it, locations are very important. So I would start going to these places like Point Lobos. You know, in Point Lobos, I ended up touring in a, in a squall. So it was, you know, thundering, wind and everything. I got drenched. And out of that uh, came a great plot line. I won't tell you it. But that's what's so wonderful, you know, going into locations when you're writing, uh, particularly, I guess, historical novels. It really takes you to the time and place that you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said you've been living in the area for like nine years. And so you actually got to do a deep dive into this place that maybe you didn't know as well as you thought you did? No. Well, I also, when I moved to Carmel, my husband is a a musician and I'm a writer and we like uh, remote places. So we bought a a home up on a mountaintop, um, which was almost 45 minutes from a quart of milk. You don't forget your milk Mm -hmm. kind of place. Mm -hmm. So I didn't spend in those first years, I was also working on another book. I didn't spend that much time going off the mountain. Um, so when I started on the artist colony, then I started to know Carmel. Uh, people said it was crazy that I hadn't been to the beach in the first few years. <laughs> but we loved our mountaintop and the isolation. And we both had our work projects. So so it took me a while to get into Carmel. Yeah, it was because I wrote the book that I started spending more time in Carmel. Uh, and before we just get into the plot of the book a little bit, um, there are there are also lots of cameo appearances by artists and writers, uh, notably uh, Robinson and uh, Una Jeffers, and Torhouse, uh, their stone house and and tower that is is right there out on. Carmel Point that some of our listeners may have even visited there, but he's about the only one I didn't suspect of, of <laughs> being involved in directly involved in murdering anybody. Yeah, we couldn't let no, we couldn't have Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> he's a hero of Carmel. I can't, I can't darken his character. And no. So, so uh, how did how did you must have had a lot of fun pulling in real life people f- for Sarah to cavort with? Yeah, well, that that's such a great example. The, the tour house and, and Hawk Tower. I knew nothing about it. I'm just, you know, being a tourist in Carmel. And I heard there was an event going on in their garden. And I, so I went. I looked at his poetry. I walked up the stone spiral stat tower, look out at the view. And I went, oh, my God, Robinson. Robinson has to be in my story. And then I read about his wife, who was amazing. And they both had to be in my story. It just the location was there and they had to be there, too, with my fictional characters. And and I, I'm very conscientious of fact and fiction and historical fiction. I think there's a problem, uh, not to be critical, but I think there should be a category called historical uh fantasy or historical you know if you're going to have the president madison uh daughter assassinated on the stairs of the capitol you shouldn't call that historical <laughs> fiction <laughs> you know it's right. not historical fiction that, that and it's terrible because people read it and i i went really i don't remember that in high school and then i went and looked it up and no his daughter didn't didn't get assassinated on the steps of the capitol 
it, I, I really think that, you know, there should be a dividing line here. If you're gonna use historical fiction, you gotta stick with the facts. And everything in my book about those those real people are based on a lot of research and making sure you know, that I was true to, to true to them and the integrity of their characters. Yeah, I think it's always uh, fun for the reader to either refresh themselves, um, like oh Robinson Jeffers, yeah. or to look up Robinson mm. Jeffers. Mm. You know, and so I I think this kind of fiction. You know, if you're just going in for the the mystery plot, you're going to enjoy that. But when mm-hmm. there's this kind of dimension, it can be a whole nother dimension for the reader to to engage with. Yeah, I found it because, as I said, it started as a mystery, you know. And then when I when there was so much con- rich content besides locations and Robinson Jeffers, etc., I couldn't. It couldn't just be a mystery anymore. It just didn't work. These characters came in and, and I, you know, there was one particular character whose uh, name is Serena and I don't want to talk too much about her, but here's an example when you're doing historical research. She was not in maybe a small character in the first, second, third draft, but by the fourth draft, I had done an amazing amount of research about the Japanese immigrants in Carmel during that period and, and actually was rather shocked with what I, what I learned. And it became very important to me that that, that story was in my book because that was what was going on in the 1920s. And to ignore it uh, was not fair to my story. So that's when Serena was born and then grew and developed and became a very important character in my novel. And I can't remember if we said the book is set in 1924, but it is something I think that... uh, we look at the kind of Asian backlash that is happening mm-hmm. uh, today, and um, it was really so overt mm-hmm. in other times in our history. And so tell us a little bit about the Japanese community on the Monterey Peninsula. On the Monterey Peninsula, they were Japanese immigrants, and they came over uh, in the late late 1800s. They followed, the Chinese came even earlier, and they were not treat it well either but the Japanese followed and they, they were fishermen and they loved abalone which at that time it was an amazing amount of abalone I mean it was filled with so many fish and the Japanese uh, were needing to find new locations because they were having trouble with the fishing in Japan so they came over and at the time they were they were welcomed well they were let in without any kind of extra papers or restrictions and they settled along the shore of, of Monterey as, as fishermen. And not to generalize, but they were hard workers and created an, an amazing industry, including sardines also. That was another very popular. And they would be, at first, they were sending everything back home. And then as time came on and the, the war came, sardines became popular because you couldn't get hold of something. Couldn't get hold of tuna, I think. So they started eating sardines. So this time for them... Uh, the, the white folks uh, became jealous. The white fishermen uh, said, wait a minute, they're taking all our fish, which really wasn't true at the time. There was more than enough fish for everybody, but they really, they just didn't like the Japanese being so what good at, good at what they did. <laughs> so they started, they started having quotas. They started having restrictions on them. 
which got worse and worse. And like they didn't let the kids go to school with the white kids. And then when there came a period where they didn't want them to own property anymore, they had bought property and they later was taken away from them. It was the same time, the 1920s, so interesting now that I, because I love the 1920s, that's my time. And the the 2020s, things keep popping up, right, that are similar to the 1920s. Between the wars, hopefully we're not going to have another one, but between the wars, this period of, of wealth and success, technology, the radio was invented then, the record player, the telephone, just like now with the internet where we are 100 years later. Now I'm trying to think, where, why am I going here with you on this? So the comparison of the two and then the prejudice. Yes, the prejudice that we're seeing today towards the Asian and, of course, the Blacks, but there weren't that many Blacks in Monterey. But the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s was the largest membership ever. And the Ku Klux Klan today is rising. Uh, they are yeah. becoming more and more members. In the 1920s, they were accepted. There were many, there might be today, but anyway, there were many congressmen who were Ku Klux Klan. They were members and they had no thoughts of not letting people know that. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of connection between the 1920s and the 2020s, which I hope to write more about in the future. Yeah. So the Japanese, back to that story, the Japanese, uh, they had their own community. There still is, I go to a cleaner's owl cleaners in Monterey that has been there for a hundred years. I have gone out on Point Lobos where there used to be a community of Japanese uh, that's no longer there. So they would find pockets where they could be on their own and try not, not to bother the white folk. The Japanese culture, again, not to generalize, wanted to assimilate with the, where they came. They wanted to assimilate into Monterey. They did not wear, the Chinese were much more strict. They continued to wear the clothes, the culture of their of China, where the Japanese wore fashionable clothes. They wore Western clothes, Western hats, because to them it was, they wanted to, you know, to build their families here and they wanted to belong. They didn't want to stand out as foreigners. They wanted to become Americans and they were proud to be here. And, uh, we had trouble accepting that. This theme is threaded through the narrative, and we'll let our readers and listeners <laughs> discover a lot of that on their own. But also uh, another significant thing that I think you're addressing in this whodunit book is <laughs> is really the exploitation and the struggle women artists faced, women painters faced. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that surprised you or why would it surprise us? I don't know. But um, uh, what you discovered about that and because that's kind of a I mean, these are women artists you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, I kind of knew something about it because I knew from my my great aunt's paintings I had to, I wondered when I first saw them when I was a much younger person because she would sign them, uh, it was ABC. She would initial ABC. I thought, well, that's kind of cute, but why isn't she using her full name? And that was when I found out that at that time, women artists were better off getting accepted, impossible almost to get a gallery show, but to be accepted at all, they would use their initials and then maybe the buyer would know they were a woman. Um, the critics 
what you mentioned is an actual quote in the beginning of my book of a major critic who felt that women were better off raising babies, that that was, that was who they were. They should, that's their creation was babies and stay away from art because they would never be good at it. And they really believed that. And that exploitation of artists' work, female artists' work, is also an element in this story, too. And we have the plucky protagonist, Sarah, who is the sister of Ada Bell, who was the person murdered. I don't think that that's uh, giving too much away. No, we can let that out. <laughs> that's not giving. That's kind of uh, how it all starts. And I will also say that there's a cute little character, Albert, who's a Jack yeah. Russell Terrier. Made yeah. me wonder if you yourself had your own Jack Russell Terrier <laughs> running around. <laughs> well, I, I would want to. I, I've had dogs all my life. But when we moved on the mountaintop, which would be a very appropriate place to have a dog, better than in New York City, we decided not to have a dog because we travel a lot. We, we spend time in France and we and we move around and we just didn't think it was fair to the dog. So I've been without a dog. Everyone else in Monterey, by the way, right now has a dog, but me. I've never seen such a dog population. <laughs> but uh, then, you know, having no dog in time, and you know, it's kind of lonely up on a mountaintop sitting in a studio writing a book. And I wrote, I want, I want a dog. And so I created Albert to be my friend. And uh, people love Albert. I love Albert. He's just a marvelous fellow. <laughs> yes, you, you could actually uh, really picture his head turning as he's yeah. watching the activities around him. So he's yeah. a, a fun element, a fun uh, element. Uh, of the book. Yes. And, he's, yes. and he is a dog and, and he knows so much. You know, it's so frustrating for him because you know, he's looking up at these adults like, come on, figure it out. <laughs> you know, like, I'll, I'll give you another hit. You know, the dog is saying, I'll, I'll let, let me take you over here. And, you, and here, yeah, here's another hit. Maybe that'll help you to solve this crime that I already know who did it. <laughs> he's, he's helpful to, to all the activities going on. Yeah, uh, as new characters come in, you suspect them almost immediately. And uh, hard to let go of some uh, sinister types. Uh, the art dealer, for instance, it's hard to look on him sympathetically at all about anything. <laughs> it is. And he's, tr- and he's true to, to the, uh, well, not, you know, there are good art dealers. Don't anyone ever think I'm not saying that? But there are some very crooked art dealers and artists uh, get, you know, not only women, but men to get taken advantage of by art dealers. I think their commission is what, 70, if you get into a gallery in New York, I think they're 70, 80 percent goes to the to the dealer when something is sold. So there are a lot. They're in it not for the art. They're in it to make a bundle of money. So I, I love I love I love that guy because he represents I used to work in the music business for many years. And that was the artist managers who took advantage of artists. Um, so that was sort of my artist manager becoming an artist dealer. So <laughs> it, it was gratifying for you to make him a little slimy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Joanna, is there anything you do want to talk about the plot uh, for our for our readers and listeners? Well, that one thing that I first mentioned that I found so interesting was how this character Serena uh, came into being. The um, 
an interesting it has come up and I can't think of the book right now something gilded edge and my my book you know I'm sort of a Pollyanna person I uh I have a lot of positive hope and I, I write my character my female in all my books is always what you say perky I just call her perky she's uh a sweet person but very strong and knows what she wants and so the reason I'm bringing that up is um, beyond that, also, I like hope and, and positive. So I, people in Carmel are going to be very happy with my book. I do not uh, show the dark side as much, mainly the, the thing that I could not avoid, which was the Japanese racism that was going on. But, but otherwise, I'm pretty gentle to the souls of Carmel. And there's this new book that which I'm, I'm curious to read, of course. It's a, called The Gilded Age. And there were you know, dark things that happened. It was originally a bohemian community starting in 1906. So by 1924, uh, it had been around, you know, what is that, 20 years. And there were, you know, dark things happened. There were suicides and dark, just dark. That's the best thing to say about it. And this Gilded Edge, which comes, it's about 1906, I think, is, is about these suicides. So she's like taking my my Carmel, right? <laughs> my beautiful <laughs> Carmel, and showing a much darker side of it. And it'll be very interesting, the contrast. I'd love to talk to her someday about how how we differently saw Carmel during that period. Is, is that a novel? Is that um, a novel? No, it's nonfiction. The Gilded Age, and I stand to be corrected at this point, because I know it's definitely based on real people. Uh, it was a young poet who committed suicide in a triangle love affair. It was very popular back then. And it's, that is in my book. Um, Ada Bell does wear a pendant. She belongs to this female bohemian group, which was, was fashionable in that time period. And I'm afraid there's too many suicides going on now too, but that women and men would consider that way out if they felt their art wasn't, they weren't being seen, they weren't popular, they weren't selling, um, they were suicides and they, they liked to use uh, a little pendant with cyanide in it. You know, she would joke about it, Isabel would joke about it and say, nah, I would never do this. I just like to know it's there. And she had a whole club of women who wore this pendant. So that's based on history. Again, I, I try and base a lot on history. Yes. But yeah, cyanide. Well, you know, I think just the fact that you chose to focus it on women artists working together is in itself notable in just describing that these are people evolving style and not necessarily copying men. Yeah, that's it that you mentioned that because I mean, I, I grew up in an artistic family. My father was a filmmaker. I grew up in Hollywood. I always was around artists. It's my life. Um, and I also have, you know, that they are the underdog when we're talking again about art dealers and art managers that take advantage of them. So I guess artist is a subject that really interests me a lot. Because you, right, all three of my books in, are involved with uh, musicians in the second one, but and a writer in the first one. So, hey, I just realized <laughs> I covered three. <laughs> What's left? I'm talking with Joanna Fitzpatrick. Her novel is The Artist Colony. And I thank you so much for, for uh, joining me today. 
Well, thank you for inviting right. me. Wonderful. <laughs> it's been it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. I've been talking with novelist Joanna Fitzpatrick on her latest work set in the Monterey area. The Artist Colony is a publication of She Writes Press. The book Joanna referred to during our conversation about the darker side of Carmel is Catherine Prendergast's The Gilded Edge, Two Audacious Women and Their Love Triangle That Shook America. Let's take a short break. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea. like they were living the American dream, handsome husband who emigrated from Germany, our author, a smart, intelligent wife with their two lovely children. But over time and years of deep emotional abuse, her love diminished and they divorced. That's when the true nastiness developed as Klaus kidnapped the two kids and seemed to evaporate into thin air. This is the story of Jeannie Baker Guy and her determination to reclaim her children. Jeannie is a longtime blogger and has been inspired by the work of other writers and mentors to develop her own course on reflective writing. And You'll Never Find Us is her first memoir. Here is my conversation with her. Jeannie Baker Guy. Uh, welcome today to talk with us about your memoir, You'll Never Find Us. Thank you, Suzanne. I am honored to be here with you. You know, this is the story of an episode in your life that happened over 40 years ago of your ex-husband fleeing, taking your children away. And the title of your book is a quote from the letter he wrote you, essentially saying you're never going to find your kids. And the story is of you almost defying your yourself uh, or feeling so compelled to find your children that you do find them and bring them home and and of your whole emotional transformation through that whole process. So why 40 years later, you release this book that is so filled with immediate emotions? It, it seems like this is a story that you've been needing to tell for a long time. So tell us about the writing of this memoir and why now? Sure. I like the term you used, almost defying myself. Nobody's ever said that. And you just nailed it. That's really what happened to me. I was living the story, obviously, back in 1977, and really had no intention of writing it. I did keep lots of documentation from that time frame, almost for legal purposes, uh, if I should need them. But uh, later I decided, it wasn't until after my ex-husband died in 2001, that I really gave consideration to possibly writing the book someday and thought I would write it as perhaps a legacy book, 
just for the children, just so they would know the history, they would know what was going on in my life and their lives at that time. At the time of the kidnapping, my son was six and a half and my daughter had just turned three. Um, she has no recollection of that time frame, but he does. I thought about writing the book as early as 2002, but I really wasn't ready to. Um, I carried a lot of grief, carried a lot of anger that I thought I had worked my way through. And it wasn't until 2005 that I went to a retreat on Woodby Island with Christina Baldwin. And to get into the retreat, we had to send samples of our writing work. And I sent um, some of my irreverent blogs to her. And I just happened to mention about the story of the kidnapping. And uh, she's the first one who said, oh, wait a minute. We're, we're not going to write funny stories. We're, we're going to take a look at what you need to take a look at. And that was that story of the kidnapping. So that's really what got the ball rolling. So you were writing, you had a creative life as a writer. And if I'm understanding you and kind of humorous writing, but you don't see really very much of that in in this story. Was that writing that you were doing, I mean, that got you to, to Woodby Island in the first place? Do you think that that was kind of a, a deflection or trying to create some other persona to to maybe cover up the 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 pain of this episode um that is a really great question um no actually i don't but i do think it was a doorway to getting to this book in fact i have just i'm working on an article right now for writer's digest about how reflective writing can help you become a better writer. I taught reflective writing, journal writing, self-awareness writing for aging myself here for about 25 years. And I know in that time frame that I was able to go through lots of self-development. And I used the blogs that I wrote and I, with, with the irreverent wit just so I could let others know that I was sharing my own faux pas. And in the classes I taught, we would use those, uh, those blogs. I also used the work of Julia Cameron just to get people to be more vulnerable so they could dig deep and find out who they were, who they wanted to be, and move forward in their lives. Well, lo and behold, reflective writing did that for me and open the doorway for me then to write something that you're right. It was not a fun book to write. There is some humor in it just to give the reader a break here and there, but it was a painful book to write and a, a painful story to relive. And you can you can really feel that when you're when you're reading the book. And it seems like going back to that that period that, that you recount in the book that the transition you went through, you had to go through it very quickly. Mm. You you divorced your husband, Klaus, and had what I would consider a kind of unusual custody arrangement with <laughs> him having, you know, your son and you having your daughter and 
and shared daycare, you know, and swapping weekends. And, and I know many people can kind of relate with the chaos of, of shared custody. But at the time, you were somebody who maybe had other even unstated ambitions, but that you got married and had children and were doing, by your own words, what you you felt was expected of you at that time. Yet that was also a time of changing roles for women. And you were also kind of writing that professionally. But when Klaus took the kids you had immediately snapped to as a person who could act and and take care of yourself and and take care of your children. And that must have been an astounding transformation for you. It came in fits and starts, I would have to, to say. But the bottom line was, how could I not search for my children? How could a loving parent who cared about the well-being of their children not find them. I realized later that I had been the victim of a very psychologically abusive relationship. And now those children were in the hands of, yes, their father. And yes, he was a a good man in many ways, but one does not flee and steal their children away from the other parent. There is nothing loving about that, especially in our situation where I had done everything at that point to uh, make sure that everything was fair. I had been taught most of my life to be fair. And at the time, I think we should also point out that you were living in Indiana. Correct. And the state laws, the the federal laws, the uh, social kind of fabric that you think would have supported you and helped with this process was really hard for you to access because a lot of it didn't exist. That's correct. And I look back on the split custody arrangement that we had, thinking that it was uh, an open door to a mutually compatible time for my ex-husband and me but it was just one more time when um, it allowed more abuse. And he had, your ex-husband had a lot of, I would say, enablers too, that you had a whole network of, of people, some of whom were clergy, who he was communicating with and family members he was communicating with but all really kind of cunning in a way and that oh absolutely uh, there was a lot of deception involved so i don't know if you want to talk about that well i was asked recently if i was surprised that he left a letter or that he sent a letter through this mutual friend of ours who uh, was an episcopal priest he has since died and i in fact wrote the book in in honor of him and and my mother as well. But um, Klaus plotted and planned this this whole thing. So the letters and the contact were all part of it. And and the letters were contradictory, letters that he sent to my mother, to my dad, to my sister, to my best friend. 
the stories were all different. And I didn't know if that was part of the cunning ways he wanted uh, to follow or whether he, he, there were red herons. I had no idea. All I knew was that he really, in my opinion, used and abused this wonderful friend of ours, this Episcopal priest, and took him into his confidence and therefore really destroyed more lives than just mine mm -hmm. uh, by doing that. And I did get support. John, the minister, felt so bad about what had happened. He did not know the contents of the letter that he delivered to me. And shortly after Klaus and I got uh, the final divorce, we'd been separated about a year and a half, but I met my second husband and uh, married him. And that's when Klaus really went off the deep end because he anticipated our being able to get back together. And that was never going to happen. I, I would never subject myself to that form of a marriage. Uh, living with someone who, oh, I can't even count the pre prejudices and the pre prejudicial comments that I lived with during that time frame. Um, and you have to remember, Klaus was born in the late 30s, which was when Hitler was coming into power. So his background was totally different than mine. Yes. So my second husband was uh, the white knight, you know, in shining armor who was willing to drop everything and keep me afloat and made me realize I had the power within me to follow through with this. I, I was no gumshoe, as is said in the book, but yeah. by God, I was going to do everything I could to get those children back. And we'll let our listeners discover, I don't want to give too much of your story away here, <laughs> here because there is a lot of layers and, and unfolding. I mean, you you say right up front that, that you did get your children back, mm -hmm. but it is that is the story of You'll Never Find Us, your, your memoir. I, I want to um, follow up with you a little bit on this notion of reflective writing. And um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Self-published a book with an, a photographer, a uh, friend of mine, who also turns out to have been a really good writer. Um, I started doing workshops, as I said, based on Julia Cameron's work uh, and doing journal writing three pages every morning. I started that in the mid-90s. And then I went to work for a spirituality center, uh, a group of people who put up with my overly dry wit and uh, irreverence. <laughs> and I did 14 week workshops for, that was back in the day when people wanted to sign up for long workshops. And we studied as a group and it was a very egalitarian system. And through teaching reflective writing and practicing it all these years, it really, enhanced my writing. It caused me to make changes in my life that I probably would not have otherwise made. And um, really, as I come to think of it now, it gave me the fodder for understanding the whole kidnapping era of my life in a way that I maybe would not have. Uh, I was told that had I written, had I published the book that I 
uh, just completed the memoir, if I had released that early on, it was one of those perfect women, evil husband books that are a dime a dozen. And I was told by my critique group at the time, we want to know about the characters. We want to know about the people in the book. Well-rounded, you fell in love with Klaus. How did that happen? And so I really needed to delve into the characters and myself as the protagonist. And I think the reflective writing really helped me do that. Uh, greater understanding, greater depth, more wisdom. So I think it supports, foundationally supports, reflective writing supports writers. And so would you describe reflective writing as structured but uncensored writing that, that you do in a solitary fashion for the eyes of nobody but yourself? I would say that's very accurate. I think there are a number of ways to do it. I followed Julia Cameron's work for a long time. That book, The Artist's Way, the, my version of it falls apart. I have to keep you know rubber bands in it to keep the pages together because it's so well-worn. But then I also transi transitioned into Christina Baldwin's work on journal writing. And that in turn caused me to develop my own process. Yes, three pages every morning of stream of consciousness writing by setting a timer, uh, keeping pen to paper, or if you need to, to write on the computer. It is a way to reach self-awareness and you don't need to show those pages to anybody. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, there's also the method of free writing where you can set a timer close your eyes, then open your eyes and look around a room and see an object and then just free write about it. You know, you're looking at a lamp. Well, write about the lamp. And then around 2008 or 10, maybe I started my own practice of what I call restory reflective writing. And I use, and that's what is in the, the first book that I did. I use prompts for people to take a look at their lives as they are currently constituted being very vulnerable. And then we would do this in a group. We would have a group discussion, a deep conversation. Everything was held in great confidence. And then I would give people different prompts that would sort of expand their thinking about who they were. And well, if I did such and such, then maybe I could. Or if I were to write a story about my life and it had a different ending, it would be on and on. And people could share, but they didn't have to share. So uh, that's just another way to, to get in touch with uh, and, and process, go through self-development. And you also mentioned um, that in the process of writing this memoir, You'll Never Find Us, that you had a lot of or a writing group or readers that you would share the work with. So talk a little bit about that and also talk about how you landed with She Writes Press and how they helped with the publication process. I used to be of the opinion that if you were a real writer, you didn't need anybody else. <laughs> you should be able <laughs> to just put down pen onto paper or sit at your computer and it would pour out and you would run your own edits. Well, not only is that not true, but I personally find that stupid. That's stupid thinking because we need each other. We need a community. 
writing is a solitary uh, endeavor. But I got into a critique group uh, in probably around 2010, met them through an organization that I've been part of since 2003 called Story Circle Network, which is a uh, nonprofit organization for to support and encourage women to write their stories. So I found this critique group through them, um, submitted some pages to them. They welcomed me, said my writing was just wonderful, and then they tore it all apart. <laughs> so um, I learned quickly to accept criticism. And as you know, they say in the writing world to it's not only allowable, but important to kill your darlings. You know, I thought the book was great. Well, it wasn't. And it's only through the encouragement and support of other writers and editors that I've got the book done. Um, well, I have three mentors. Christina Baldwin was one of them. Susan Albert from Story Circle Network. And then a woman named Mary Day Long from the first critique group that I was in. When I was ready to give up, uh, on numerous occasions, uh, shedding many tears, uh, Mary would not let that happen. And she became my first editor. I mean, strong editor after the critique group. And we worked in tandem on the book. And then in 2016, Brooke Warner, the publisher of She Writes Press, was uh, invited to the Story Circle Network Biennial Conference. And I was the MC and got to meet her ahead of time and then introduce her. Uh, I remember joking with her how lovely she was, how brilliant and how very tall she was. Um, she is golden to me. I met with her for maybe 15 minutes during the, the conference. We had a time when we could share words. And I sort of tracked her for a few years not stalked her, just tracked her. But um, <laughs> um, I then submitted my work to her, I think in 2018. And she wrote back and she said, we, we want you. So I loved it. I love the whole hybrid publishing world. If it's the quality of She Writes Press. And if I may add, I couldn't be happier about the book coming out now because the book broadened over the years from just this story of the kidnapping, of which there is still way too many cases of parental kidnapping these days. But it broadened and really took on the perspective of uh, looking at the patriarchy of the 70s. How does that compare to now? And the whole idea of uh, abusive marriages and how do you grow as a woman when you're straddling the 50s and that mentality and the women's movement in the 70s, how do you come into knowing who you are and how you want to be in the world? So there's a lot of comparison between now and, and back then. The book is You'll Never Find Us, a memoir. And, and one last thing, I wonder where your writing life is going these days. <laughs> Well, as said originally, this was just supposed to be like a, either a legacy book for my kids or a one-off book. And damned if She Writes Press didn't make me feel like I've got another book in me. So uh, <laughs> I have a follow-up memoir. 
I've had many questions from people say, well, we're glad to get this book, but then what, you know, what happened after that? And there were many years of other things, another kidnapping attempt, a court case, uh, lots of therapy. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to write another book. Very good. I appreciate your joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. Jeannie Baker Guy, and the book is You'll Never Find Us, a memoir. Thanks so much. Take care. Jeannie Baker Guy. Jeannie mentioned some authors that were very helpful to her in her own process as a writer. Julia Cameron, whose seminal work is The Artist's Way, and Christina Baldwin, a writer and teacher of Telling Story. Jeannie also mentioned the hybrid publishing model of her publisher, She Writes Press. Joanna Fitzpatrick, with whom we spoke earlier on her book, The Artist Colony, also worked with this independent publisher, which is a female-run enterprise in support of women writers. It's a community, a place where women come together and write and edit and publish and support one another. We'll go deeper on She Writes Press on a future episode, as they're an organization worth following. Suzanne Lang. I thank you for listening, and I thank James Morey and Mark Prell for production assistance. You can hear us broadcast live on the first and fifth Sunday of the month at 10 a.m. Pacific Time at 104.9 FM in the North Bay. We are Sonoma County's NPR station, and we stream and podcast at krcb.org. I encourage you to download the KRCB app for your Android or Apple device and listen anytime. We love to hear from you, so send your comments to listener at krcb.org. We are a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media. It is a novel idea. <laughs>